preacher this morning, the Reverend Elliot Winks, Father Winks, uh, or Father Elliot, or he's been called other things, uh, is, a, uh, uh, is on the church uh, relations staff at World Relief, which is the relief arm of the National Association of Evangelicals, and uh, has been our ministry partner at New Hope uh, since we began. And so we're honored to have Father Elliot with us this morning. Well, you took away half my sermon. It's no fair. Um, some of you may remember me from last time I was here when I was rector of um, Church of the Resurrection, Anglican Church in Greenspring Valley, where I am no longer the rector, but a friend of mine is. Um, so it was nice to have that. Did you do that just for me, all of those Episcopal prayers? <laughs> I was trying to flatter you that you were that thoughtful. One of the joys of coming and preaching in somebody else's... Um, pulpit is you get to say all those things you always wanted to say to your own congregation that you can't. Um, but the challenge coming here is I'm in a friend's pulpit, so I have to be very careful. Um, but of course, then I forgot that Jason has this tendency, which is a great tendency, which most churches don't get, which you're really blessed by, which is to preach through entire books of the Bible. Um, you could be in a church for 20 years and not hear certain passages of scripture. Um, and Jason just and so he emailed me that my sermon today should be on numbers 25 through 30, <laughs> um, which I thought was very interesting. And he said, oh, by the way, spend some time talking about world relief and what you're doing in the Congo. So um, in honor of that request and how hot it is today, I've cut my sermon down from two to one hour. Um, but we will, we, will, we will see what we can get done in about 20 minutes. Does that... Okay with everybody? Um, you'll notice that I'm not wearing shoes, and that's not because I'm so hot, but I realized how powerfully the Spirit is moving in your congregation. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You believe that. Believe that. Um, no, I forgot what a warm space you have, and uh, I thought I might get a little more casual. Um, at World Relief, we, we partner with the local church both here in the U.S. and on the ground in Africa, Asia, and Central America to uh, reach the world, uh, reach the most vulnerable people in the world. Um, our goal is, is not to um, go in and make handouts and things like that, but really is to go into the communities we're called into and transform them by first helping transform the local church. And so we create relationships with churches like New Hope in the hope that working with us um, begins a process of transformation, a view of the larger world, allowing the spirit to move in new ways uh, in the congregation. And then a place like New Hope's um, involvement with us then carries on to churches in Africa and places like that where those churches then get transformed so that they can transform their communities. Um, because the reality is there will come a day when we are uh, called out of the places we're working in or thrown out, which happens sometimes as governments change. And we want to know that when that moment happens, the work we're doing will continue through the local church. And we're actually the only relief and development agency that works that way. Um, we, we have very few staff. Uh, around the entire world, we have uh, 2,500 staff, which may sound like a lot, but it's actually not that many when you compare us to other organizations which have 30 and 40,000. Um, and we work with 60,000 volunteers. And last year, we reached 3.5 million people that way. Um, so we really deeply appreciate your partnership with us. 
Uh, I'm going to spend a few minutes today talking about our work in the Congo, uh, which is a country that doesn't really come into the news that much, um, and it should. Uh, the Congo is a place where um, there has been an ongoing disaster now for nearly 12 years. It's a place that's caught in the middle of Central Africa um, between uh, tribal clashes and national clashes between Rwanda and Uganda um, and other countries in the area who are trying to get its resources. And uh, it, it is a horrific situation there. And I've brought a video with me which speaks a little bit to what's happening there. And I just want to prepare you that it, it, it talks about some things that are very difficult. Um, so let's cue that up. This is a country which is now on its knees. It's a country which needs prayer. It's a country which needs love and solidarity from other nations. And genuine interventions from the international community to help stop whatever uh, armed groups are trying to do to continue war uh, in the Pray with me, if you would. Father, we thank you that you are unshakable and that the, the foundations of this world, as we were told in the Psalms, are unshakable because you have built them. But Lord, we see so much around us here in Baltimore, in Reisterstown, far away in the Congo, that challenges that view. We pray that you would not allow our hearts to be filled with guilt, but to give us a hope, a sense of your presence. 
that you're in the midst, in the mix. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes together as a church, as your family, to see how we can serve you and serve others. Help us not to shy away from these difficult things, but to embrace them, knowing that in the embracing, as Paul says, in entering into suffering, that we find our way into glory through the power of your Spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. See, now I work with stuff like that every day and it overwhelms me. So um, it may just be that or maybe the heat. I'm not sure. Um, one of the reasons I, I share that video at times is there's this, there's this curious thing that happens in us as Christians in that we seem to shy away from the hard realities of what's happening in the world. Um, it's fascinating to me that this passage in, in Numbers in many ways deals with blood and the need for there being a blood sacrifice and the role of the priest in the Old Testament and how bloody and visceral that job was. And it's interesting to me to see as I read through different uh, versions of this passage how some of them have softened the language because we don't like the in-your-face, earthy, bloody nature of it. And yet, what are our favorite TV shows? Things like 24 and The Killing and stuff like that. So on the one hand, we have this aversion to blood, and on the other hand, we welcome it into our homes every night. The schizophrenia of the Christian soul, I guess. Um, And I'm just as guilty. I must admit. But all is not lost in the Congo. For we know that we do have a God who stands with us and who stands with them. And we've seen it time and time again. I have a colleague in the Congo whose name is Marcel. Marcel is our director of church mobilization. And for me, Marcel is a story of God preparing somebody from the beginning of time. See, before the Civil War broke out in Congo, Marcel was known in his village as someone who didn't participate in all that sort of stuff, who never took sides, who had friends everywhere. And then through the Civil War, God protected Marcel. And now in his position as our church mobilizer, as he calls on church leaders, they go, this is Marcel. We trust Marcel. Let's go see what Marcel is talking about. And he brings in church pastors from different tribes to meet with each other. And over the course of a weekend, they move from not being able to even look at each other to sitting together in small rooms talking about how can we work together to bring peace to the Congo. It's not a story about Marcel. It's a story about God having the right person in the right place at the right time before we even knew that we needed him. We're doing some amazing stuff in the Congo, and I want to run through a few slides, a few pictures, maybe that'll lighten the mood after that video. This is, I call this our slogan, if you will. God longs for the broadest, most diverse social network on the planet, the church, to rise up like never before to engage the great causes of our day. We talk about social networks. We talk about Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. But there's been a social network that existed long before 
any of that. God created the most amazing social network the world has ever seen. And yet somehow we're not connecting with each other. Hopefully that's the right button. Just a picture of the beauty of Congo. Um, an incredibly rich, fertile, beautiful place. This is uh, 495. Um, This, you can't really tell, but this is a, a bicycle that boys use to transport goods to market. This bicycle is completely made of wood uh, because there's no metal to be used. This is our office in the Congo, very simple. This is the interior of one of the churches that we work with. Um, in some places I go to, I show that and they're like, wow, I show that at the Stone Chapel and you're like, uh-huh, yeah. Feels, feels like home. Yeah. And of course, you know, the faces of the conflict. The faces of the future of the Congo. We do a lot of work with children uh, in AIDS, HIV prevention, um, in teaching them life skills. And it's faces of hope. One of our greatest strengths, uh, one that we, we get high marks for and we get a lot of funding for the government for, is a program called Maternal and Child Health. It's um, aimed at helping mothers understand the need for breastfeeding, um, proper nutrition, proper water, proper hygiene. Um, and in some countries, we've lowered the infant mortality rate 75%. Um, and that's not just our figures, but that's based on scientific journals coming in to see what we do. Uh, it, it's a phenomenal program. And to know each day that there are children alive today because of what we do is, is a very gratifying thing. Women lined up to come to one of our centers to learn. The hope, the expectation of what lies ahead for them. And the faces of the future. I don't know if you could read the statistic um, in the light, but one of the slides said... Um, Victims of rape in the Congo range from age 3 to age 75, which, as the father of a three-year-old, just boggles my mind. I, I, it just... But there is hope. I love this picture because it's five little girls in a country where, where women have been ab abused and brutalized. It's five girls saying, yes, we can make a difference. Yes, this can be our country. And that's our hope for them as well. Now, one of the reasons that uh, Jason asked me to talk a little bit about the Congo, um, other than the fact that it's a great place to be praying for and a place that we're doing some amazing work, is that, um, like Phineas from Numbers 25, who was filled with the zeal of the Lord, um, in a moment of insanity and I think zeal for the Lord, I volunteered for a fundraiser for the Congo um, in which I'll be one of eight uh, people riding from Bend, Oregon to Baltimore, Maryland on our bicycles um, in seven days. So we're going to be riding 24 hours a day across seven days um, in shifts. I don't have to ride the whole time. Uh, the way I feel right now, I hopefully won't have to ride more than 20 minutes. Um, they will not be made of wood. No. <laughs> Hallelujah. 
No, my, my bike, which was donated to me, or loaned to me, I should say, I, I can't keep it, uh, is a, a very, very nice. I didn't know they made bikes this nice or this light. I can literally pick it up like this. Um, and that's a real God thing, um, because otherwise I wouldn't be able to ride. Um, and we would, we would covet your prayers, the eight of us. We uh, fly out from here on July 30th, and we leave at 6 p.m. on July 31st from Bend, Oregon. And we will be pulling into Baltimore at 6 p.m. on uh, August 7th. Uh, we'll be having a big celebration down at Johns Hopkins University, which I'll give the information to Jason. We'd love to have you there. Uh, we're going to have bands, and um, I'm not sure what else. We have no budget, so we're trying to figure out what we can have. Um, but we would, we would covet your prayers. And uh, as it is a fundraiser, and the riders are responsible for their fundraising, I would, I would covet your, your money, too, frankly. Um, and there are flyers up here with some information on it. Uh, you can go to our website, uh, uh, wr.org. And uh, the very first thing that will come up is the race for the Congo, and there's a way to donate online, read about the riders, read about the current conditions in the Congo and the programs we're doing there. And uh, it would be wonderful um, to have your support in the midst of that. Um, Let me just start by reading a bit of uh, Numbers 25. The more I read this, the more fascinated I became with this passage from Numbers. Um, when, I, when I said I was going to preach on Numbers, my, my daughter got all excited because she loves her Numbers, and um, she can count all the way to 100, and I think she was hoping I might preach on all Numbers from 1 to 100. But uh, we're just going to preach on a little bit of chapter 25, not all the way to 30. I'm sorry, Jason. Yeah, okay. Um, it was actually nice because Jason, I talked to Jason. I said, you really want me to preach all this? He said, yeah, but can you leave out this chunk in the middle because I really want to preach that. And I'm like, oh, really? Okay, fine. Um, what, I assume you preached Balaam last time? Okay. So what's interesting as we get into this passage is to see where it sits. Um, s- scripture, it's so hard when you pull something out, you don't see the whole context into which it, it sits and it flows because... We come through the story of Balaam and we see the power of God at work uh, in delivering a message to Balak that, no, uh, sorry, the sovereign God is powerful and you're not going to be able to do anything to my people. An incredible moment of God's power being shown to Israel. But we see that over and over in Scripture, don't we? An incredible moment that should open the eyes of Israel. We see that in our own lives too, don't we? God doing something incredible in our lives or in the lives of those around us or in the world. And then what? And all too often for Israel, it's the next thing. And all too often for us sometimes, it's the next thing too. Now I'm going to read from the ESV because I think it's a little more earthy, uh, if you will, than the NIV. Um, While Israel lived in Shittim, the, Bible began, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. And I think the NIV reaches, uh, reads, and the people committed sexual immorality with the people of Moab. Um, okay, sure, but it doesn't quite drive it home the way the people began to whore. Um, it, it's no holds barred. Scripture is no holds barred about what God is trying to say here. 
These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to the Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Let's stop there for one moment. If you look up Phineas uh, in references and all of that, you'll discover there are two Phineases. And uh, I was confused at first. Uh, One is the son of Eli, who shows up in the book of Samuel, who is famous for defiling the temple. And the other one is Phineas, the son of Eleazar, who is famous for his zeal for the Lord. Um, I'd hate to be confused one for the other on the day of judgment, um, but I think God knows how to sort those things out. Um, One of the reasons I tend to like this passage is that it's, I think, a great example of really good priestly pastoral care. Um, (laughs) I knew Jason would appreciate that. Um, Sure, there are times when we want to go into our congregation with a spear and say enough of you already and drive it through the hearts of a few people. But that's not the covenant we live under, is it? That's not the the punishment we live under anymore. That punishment was taken for us. We know that the the penalty for sin is death. It's clear. Scripture says that. And this is a, a prime example of that. Think Phineas, gosh, maybe you could have gone and talked to them, had a chat with them, made them realize what they were doing. We love that, don't we? We love to sit down and chat with people and maybe we can convince them. There was no convincing this person. I mean, look at it. It's the chiefs of the people. Now, we don't even know if these chiefs of the people were guilty of yoking the people to the Baal of Peor. But we know that in leadership in the Bible, that there's a huge expectation that your people will follow the Lord. And if they don't, there's a huge price to be paid. Leadership in the Bible is, is costly. And so we don't know even if these chiefs were guilty themselves. But nonetheless, they were strung up in front of the people. And if that wasn't enough, the judges were then called out to go collect the men who had done these things and kill them in the sight of everyone. And then the people saw and they came to the tent of meeting, they came to the doors of the church and wept because they realized how far they had strayed from the Lord. Now, if you're not going to be convinced by your chiefs being strung up in the sun and if you're not going to be convinced by your neighbors being hauled off and killed in front of you and you're not going to be convinced by the entire congregation of Israel coming and lamenting before the tent of meeting, 
do you really think Phineas is going to be able to convince them that they are doing the wrong thing? It's beyond that point, and he knows that. And so he just takes matters into his hands. Now, we would think he might be punished in that moment. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But no, instead, God says, Phineas has done the right thing here. He has actually stopped the plague. Now, what we see in this moment is a foreshadowing. What we see in this moment is a foreshadowing of Jesus. You see, someone had to die to stop the plague from spreading through all of Israel. Someone had to die so the curse could be lifted and the people could come back into the presence of God. We hear that throughout Scripture, that someone must die for the sins of the people. We hear that in the New Testament, in the Sanhedrin. It is better that one should die for all of Israel. They don't even know what they're saying in that moment, but they're prophetically realizing that Jesus will now give his life for the sins of all of Israel. What we see in this moment is a precursor of Jesus both in Phineas and in the man he kills. Because Jesus is high priest and victim on the cross. We know that on the cross, Jesus was actually literally pierced with a spear by the centurion. And on the cross, he was pierced with nails and died. He died for the sins of the people. He died for our sins. He died that the curse might be lifted from us. Just as this man died so that the curse might be lifted. Isn't it interesting that this moment comes right after the great victory over Balak? Over God's great prophecy through a pagan prophet, Balaam? And yet, that doesn't affect Israel. It's so interesting to me to see how often God shows himself and says, look how great it is, look how great I am. Just follow me, trust me. But it's not enough for them. One of the complaints you may come across as you talk to people about Scripture um, is that this God of the Old Testament is so fierce. In fact, historically, we've had people who want to say these are two different gods. We've had great Americans and leaders of the church who, who take scissors and chop out parts of the Bible because they think that's a little too rough. That can't be the God we know. That can't be the God who raised Jesus from the dead. Why would he allow Phineas to kill in my name and then bless him for it? You may even hear that this God of the Old Testament is kind of a megalomaniac that it's all about him. He doesn't really care about Israel. And yet, that's not true. And we actually see this in this passage as, as Numbers moves forward. We, we see this incredible moment of zeal on Phineas's part. And God blessing him for taking the actions of a priest, making a sacrifice. Because at the end of the day, that's what a priest does. They make sacrifice. People bring their, their birds and their bulls and their sheep 
and their goats and they're sacrificed before the altar. Only this time, it's these two people who are sacrificed. But what we see as, as Numbers moves forward is a fascinating example of God's care and concern for Israel. You see, the passage I just read, it's, it's two nameless, faceless people, right? A man went out and brought in a woman from Midian and they were killed. And yet, as the story progresses, an interesting thing happens. In verse 14, the name of the slain man of Israel who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri the son of Salu, chief of a father's house, belonging to the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Kozbi, the daughter of Zur, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. Suddenly they become real people. They weren't just pawns in some galactic story that God is doing. They're actually individual people. God's taken the time to actually point out who they are. And that's important for us. Because it's not that God didn't care about these two people. He does, clearly. Because God knows each of us. We're not just some blank, blah, out-of-focus face to Him. But each of us, individually, just like Marcel, is known to God. And He would use each of us, position each of us at that right moment to make a difference for his kingdom if we would let him what's really interesting in this is that Phineas only shows up two more times once explicitly and once um, kind of tangentially once in, in Malachi he shows up sort of as Malachi is talking about how uh, the people of Israel have, have wandered and there needs to be more zeal. Um, and it's, it's kind of a tangential reference to Phineas. And then in Psalm, uh, I should look at my note, uh, Psalm 106, I think that's the right note, Psalm 106 verses 30 and 31, he shows up one more time, very explicitly. And what's really interesting is that he shows up in the same way that Abraham shows up. Then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. Whoa. We hear that about Abraham, that Abraham's faith in God was counted to him as righteousness. And that makes sense. You know, Abraham stumbled and fell and brought himself back up. He lied about Sarah. He told the truth about Sarah. He lied about Sarah. He told the truth about Sarah. It probably happened more often than Scripture tells us. Um, but in the end, he believed that God had a plan for him, and it was counted as righteousness. And yet Phineas, really? Phineas, who grabbed a spear and, and killed two people? But what we think is that Phineas killed two innocent people. But that's not how God sees it, is it? See, it wasn't just that they were being immoral, that they were having immoral sexual relationship. It was that they were committing idolatry. That they were actually blaspheming the living God and the price for that is death. We know that, right? 
The price for that, we know, is eternal death. We like to spiritualize all of that. But this passage brings it home. The price for our idolatry is death. For most of us, it's not a spear through our heart as we're watching TV. Praise the Lord. Um, Because we don't live under a covenant of law anymore. Because Jesus took that price. But at the end of the day, it's no different. At the end of the day, at the end of our days, our idolatry is going to lead to death unless we're under the blood of the Lamb. Unless that sacrifice has covered over what we've done and who we are and made us new, the price is the same for us. See, the call is not to us as every now and then we, we hear in the news because anything that's really kind of woohoo in the Christian world makes the news and anything that's subtle and gentle and lovely hardly ever makes the news. Um, we hear about the, the wackos uh, predicting the end of the world and we hear about the people saying that we need to live more Old Testament truth and kill people. Um, but we don't hear about the subtle, simple, everyday living out of our faith that most of us go through. Loving each other, loving those around us, making sacrifice. The call to us is not to grab our spears and become more zealous for God by striking down the pagans around us. But the call to us is to become more zealous, that's for sure. The call to us is to say, hey... What amazing thing has God done in my life? What amazing thing have I seen God do around me? And has that made any difference? Or am I encamped near Shittim? And am I allowing the Moabites to draw me away from my first love? What is the zeal and passion of our lives? The first zeal and passion... Sometimes we hear that we should have a zeal and passion for the Lord and we think, oh, then I shouldn't have any others, right? Um, Because Christians should just love the Lord and not love cooking or cars or whatever. And that's crazy. God's made us to be multifaceted and complicated people. But the question is, what's our first zeal? It can't be our wives or husbands. It can't be our children. It can't be our jobs, no matter how much we love them. Or hate them. It can't be our hobbies. But it's got to be our zeal for the Lord. That's what everything else has to be built upon. Because otherwise we will find ourselves tugged away. Bit by bit. Every day. Into the camp of the Midianites. So the call on us is not to pick up our spears and go out into the world. Maybe it's to pick up our spears and go into our closets. And kill the things that lurk there that drag us away from the Lord. But it's certainly a call to come before the tent and weep. And ask for the zeal of the Lord to be really imprinted on our hearts. I would imagine that if the entire church rose up with the kind of zeal that Phineas has. That places like the Congo would be transformed in many ways overnight. That the communities that we live in and work in and play in would be hardly recognizable a year or two from now. 
See, it's the sword of the Spirit that God calls us to go out with and to bring His truth and His love and His grace out there to slay the darkness and to bring in the light. Amen. If the worship team could come back up and play one more song. Yeah, well, we were confused.